Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. With me here in my home studio is award-winning poet Nick Lance. How to Dance as the Roof Caves In, his third book, was recently published by Grey Wolf Press and featured on NPR's All Things Considered. His writing has appeared in a number of literary journals and also featured on the Writer's Almanac with Garrison Keillor. He's currently a colleague of mine at Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, there's a lot to talk about, and uh, you and I have done some collaborations, so that's maybe one thing that we can uh, touch on today. But I always like to start by getting a little bit of background. So maybe we can start our conversation today by talking about that moment when you decided that you would be a poet. Sure. Um, I can sort of take you in the way back machine all the way back to high school. Um, I guess the, the sort of glib answer is that I'd been dumped by my first high school girlfriend and was looking for an outlet for all those complicated feelings that 15-year-olds feel when they're dumped by their <laughs> Teenage first Teenage angst. Yeah. Um, and I was in a, uh, a flea market in Berkeley, California, where I grew up. And just thumbing through a box of books and just sort of looking at the spines and the titles. And I grabbed a book uh, by a poet named Richard Brodigan. And the title of the book was The Pill Versus the Spring Hill Mine Disaster. And I grabbed it mostly because of the title, which I, I found very interesting. And I opened it up um, to a short poem called I Feel Horrible, She Doesn't, which I will <laughs> recite for you. It's very short. Okay. It's uh, I Feel Horrible, She Doesn't Love Me. And I've wandered around all day feeling like a sewing machine that's just finished sewing a turd to a garbage can lid. And that's maybe not the most sort of sophisticated poem, Uh but I I do think it's kind of a a brilliant metaphor and certainly spoke to me in my moment of teenaged angst. And before that, I'd always thought of poetry as something very distant and archaic and inaccessible. (laughs) And this was really the first book of poetry I read that convinced me that poetry could be contemporary and funny and irreverent. And, you know, later on I would go back and read those older poems and find those things there too. But in that moment, that was really the, my first point of contact with poetry that sort of spoke directly to me and that I responded to. And so for a few years after that, I carried around that book in my bag along with my own notebook. And I'd really been struggling in high school to sort of figure out, you know, what my, identity was going to be. I had tried briefly to be in a band. I played bass guitar very poorly. Okay. Um, you know, I, I tried to do various other things, but uh, the identity of poet, no one seemed to be, you know, scrambling to take that one. So I, I grabbed that one and um, I started writing all the time and just sort of made that part of my daily practice when I was writing on the train or waiting for classes to start. And um, I got hooked on it. Um, And I especially got hooked on this idea of metaphor and sort of creating a connection between two things that is unanticipated, but the moment you hear it is completely illuminating and sort of transfigures the way you see something. And I got really sort of addicted to that, like both trying to come up with them myself and finding them in other poets' work. And so I started attending um, readings in the bookstores in downtown Berkeley and um, just getting in contact with anything I could. Um, and it, you know, it was very sort of haphazard, um, my education in poetry until I got to college and grad school. But, um, what was the, uh, what was the poetry scene in Berkeley, uh, at that time? Like, were you seeing, um, 
you, you mentioned going to book the poetry readings mm-hmm. and things. Were were there a lot of active poets happening around in working in Berkeley? And- sure. Um, you know, there's a big sort of spoken word slam scene that I wasn't as into. Um, you know, as I said, it was kind of haphazard. So I would just sort of show up at the bookstores because they would have readings, you know, most nights and whoever happened to be reading. And I had no idea if this was a Pulitzer Prize winner or someone who had just gotten a first book from an obscure press because it was all news to me at that point. Um, so there wasn't a lot of discrimination on my point about part about which which poets I should be reading. I just sort of showed up and I if I liked the poetry, I bought their book and went home and read it. And if I didn't, I didn't. Um, yeah. So you weren't looking for particular uh, poets and you were just sort of whoever happened to be on yeah. the on the mic that night. Yeah. And I, I think I was really just sort of in love with the idea of being a poet and that, um, you know, you could write these poems and people would show up to hear you read them or would have the kinds of connections just with the poem on the page that I'd had with uh, Brodigan's work. And he was he was long dead by that time. But, um, you know, I felt very sort of close to him and rereading that book. And that was something that appealed to me quite a bit. That, that's kind of interesting because, I, I mean, a lot of, well, I guess there's sort of different types of poets. There's some poets who uh, are, how would you say, per- performative or something. They enjoy the, mm-hmm. um, the perform performative aspect of writing poetry and and their voice is integral to mm-hmm. reading even reading that that poetry you hear that voice sometimes sure. when I read your poetry I hear <laughs> your voice you have such a distinctive voice uh, and I can think of a couple of other poets that that's the case but then you know for others I suppose it's more of a solitary exercise mm-hmm. and and that that the reading of the poetry is in the voice of the person that's reading it not necessarily in the strong voice of the poet I always find that interesting as a as someone who enjoys listening to people read poetry is you know to hear the voice behind it mm-hmm. sometimes they read it in a way that i don't expect and sometimes yeah. i think hmm i heard that differently you yeah. know there's no like unlike music there's no meter you know there's no uh, defined rhythm yeah. or pace at which you read a poem yeah so uh i find that really interesting that the the performance aspect of it appealed to you yeah. early on yeah. because that's something I think that would you say that's yeah that you you still uh, consider to be important to your work is the the performance of it absolutely and I, I will say too there's often a an interesting disconnect between you know the way a poet sounds in real life versus the way they sound on the page or at least there can be I know there are certainly poets who I read on the page first and then when I heard them read out loud was kind of shocked in maybe a not so pleasant way um i really like ginsburg for example i loved howell and when i heard a recording of him reading howell it was not at all what i expected it to sound like yeah um and on the other hand you know i've I've read poems that i thought were you know sort of funny and interesting and then to hear the, the authors read them out loud in this very slow pause heavy you know kind of pretentious way really I don't know. I don't want to say sort of poisoned the experience of the poem, but made me see it differently. That clearly they had intended it in sort of a voice or pattern that I hadn't anticipated. Yeah. And have you ever found the opposite to be true? Sure. Um, You know, I think there are poems that um, can read on the page sort of deceptively simple or plain, but that in hearing the author read them, you can be sort of pulled in by their voice. a couple poets whose voices in particular I've responded to um, are the poet Cornelius Eady 
and uh, Lee Young Lee. Um, Lee Young Lee actually has a poem in one of his recent books about how he uses his voice to make his wife fall asleep. Um, and he, he does, he has this very like soft, somnolent kind of voice that really sort of lulls you into the world of the poem. It's not something you should listen to in a warm, dark room if you're trying to stay awake, but I think it's a really great poetic reading voice. Um, and Cornelius Eadie's really, he has, I think, poems that I, I said are sort of deceptively simple, but um, his his voice gives such like a inflection and vocal texture that seems musical to me mm-hmm. um, in a way that would not be apparent on the page. So uh, let's so let's go back to that uh, angst angst ridden teenage sure. <laughs> teenager that was yeah. the young Nick Lance who discovers poetry in that way and. Um, so you decided that that this was interesting and started seeking it out. And then what was the turning point to say, this is what I want to do? Like, how did you make that leap? Well, I don't know that there was like a specific moment, but it very quickly became sort of tied up with, as I said, sort of my identity in high school, the way I sort of saw myself, you know, as my friends were um, deciding, well, I'm going to be an environmental activist or I'm going to be a punk rock musician or I'm going to go to law school or, so, you know, sort of figuring out what that identity was. You know, when I talked about myself or thought about myself, it's like, you know, I was the kid who wrote poems. And that was comforting in a way to know that, like, I had my thing that I could um, sort of fall back on. And by then I was doing it so frequently that I just couldn't really imagine doing anything else. So I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do career-wise. I think I had a pretty clear sense even then that I wasn't going to make a living writing poems exactly, Mm -hmm. Um, but I knew I would be writing poems no matter what I did. Um, I just, I don't want to say I enjoyed it too much because I I guess I didn't always enjoy it, but I felt compelled to do it. But you did, you were able to navigate... um how do we say this? Uh, something that you and I talked about earlier that I, I definitely want to get to is this idea of success. But but you have enjoyed a level of success. Sure. Um, and you are you are being you, how do you say it? You are enjoying uh, making a life from your from your creative work. Yeah. I, I mean, you do other things yeah. as we all do. Uh, but you you crack the code in some way. I yeah. mean, you're, you made it to this point. So um, well, I, you know, I think the way I think about it now is. Um, you know, I still don't make my living off of writing the poems exactly. Like the success with my publications is maybe what helped get me in the door for certain teaching opportunities or fellowships earlier on. And then that's led to jobs teaching that I used to support myself. And, you know, I, I really fell in love with teaching in the same way I fell in love with poetry. And not to say that those two things are completely separate um but they are they do sometimes feel that way like definitely sort of separate ways of thinking and um working and i i don't write as much during the school year as i probably should and Mm -hmm. you know partly that's a time issue but um you know i I think there are sometimes struggles in making those two parts of my life interact in productive ways yeah well uh that's interesting uh point maybe we can touch on that a little bit is how do the demands of of teaching affect your creative work and and how do you um how do you do your work like how do you how do you work in that way yeah i mean what what i try to do um and what i find helpful is that i 
sort of seed my classes with things that I'm currently interested in. Mm -hmm. So um, each semester I'm assigning new books. Uh, and part of the reason is because I want to read those books. And I know if I assign them for the class, I will read those books. Whereas if I'm just doing it on my own, you know, maybe those books sit on my shelf until the summer. Um, and so getting my students involved with a conversation about something that I'm interested in um, currently will sort of help keep me on track as well. Mm -hmm. And in the same way with just writing projects, with my grad class this semester, for example, um, I'm going to have them work on translations. And that's partly because I've been sort of tinkering around with translations myself and mm -hmm. sort of wondering what the limits and possibilities of that are. So I thought, well, I'm going to design part of my grad class around that. So Around translations, uh, what, what kind of translations? Well, translations of poetry and from other languages into English. Okay, okay. Um, and, you know, I'm, I've, so far I've taken a pretty sort of loose, more adaptation approach to that. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I'm interested in sort of the idea of sort of how strict or liberal a translation can be and sort of what those limitations and flexibilities are. Um, so it, it's mostly right now just an issue I want to explore. And so by putting it into my grad class, um, I'm giving them, I think, something that's useful um, because translation is such an important part of world poetry, but also sort of keeping me focused on a track that's interesting to me in my own writing. Yeah. And so that that's that's the idea, the general idea. Yeah. I, I read um, I'm, I'm currently reading a book by David Hinton. Do mm. you know David Hinton's mm. work at all? He translates uh, ancient Chinese Zen poetry. OK. And he has a book called Hunger Mountain. Mm -hmm. And it's part of the book is talking about these Zen hermits that that lived in these certain re regions in China that were always associated with a mountain. Well, he lives near in Vermont, I believe, uh, <laughs> near Hunger Mountain, okay. this place. And so he goes and takes walks up in the mountain and yeah. reflects uh, on his these long walks about his translations of some of these um, Zen, uh, you know, I guess you would call them like hermits, mm -hmm. uh, essentially. But anyway, the the point is he's talking about the the Chinese characters and how yeah. he, his approach to translating this particular character meant this thing, and then yeah. we trans, you know, I translated it to mean this because of you know. So it was mm -hmm. basically taking you through, uh, sort of opening the curtain behind the process of translating these ancient. Yeah. Chinese poems to the point where the language itself was so archaic that yeah. he had to have some sort of creative uh, input or yeah. idea about what what it was about, yeah. you know, what that particular character meant to say. And my, my understanding, too, is that, you know, the sort of Chinese to English translation is one of the most difficult ones um, for contemporary translators to make. I was reading a, a it's a brief book um, called 19 Ways of Looking at Wang Wei that's um, various translations of a four-line poem um, from the Chinese. And the, the, the authors of the book provide sort of commentaries on the sort of various levels of um, exactitude exercised in each of those translations. And um, you start to see patterns in the way that uh, various translators have broached those difficulties and sort of how they've um, met those challenges, both by trying to stay very loyal to some idea of what the original poem is or by sort of more freely adapting it to an English idiom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, not to change the subject too much, yeah. but uh, one of the things that came up in our conversations uh, before 
before today was uh, about that sort of creative process. Yeah. And that was one of the things that I was really interested to talk about. You mentioned to me, and I, I think your exact words were that you were a hoarder of notes. Yes. That you're a copious note taker. Yeah. Uh, and it, part of that's due to the teaching schedule, though, right? And yeah. not having long periods of time to sit and stew on things that mm-hmm. take a note and then come back to it when you have more time. So yeah. uh, could you talk a little bit about that process and how you work from notes? And Yeah. I mean, I, I've always had the feeling that I sort of like have a like a gas tank that I've got to fill up. And until I've sort of filled it up, I can't really go anywhere. Um, Like I need sort of raw materials and those always seem to come from outside of me. Like I have, you know, a limited pool of experiences. My life is not that exciting, but you know, there are things that I draw from, uh, from my own life from time to time. Um, But most of what I write about is stuff that I read or see or just encounter out in the world. And, so I'm, I'm constantly accruing those little details. Um, and back in high school, that was, you know, took place in a notebook. Um, now it takes place in a variety of ways. I send myself text messages mm-hmm. or little voice memos, or I write things on note cards and stuff them in books. Or, you know, I sometimes still write down in notebooks or I have a, you know, series of Google documents that I keep lots of um, notes towards poems in. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm always collecting things. And I think that's one of the things that's fed my interest in found poetry in particular. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, in all the poems I write, I, I have that same feeling of these are sort of found objects that I'm sort of incorporating together in a poem and finding some way for them to fit together in a surprising way, hopefully. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that, the found poetry, yeah. uh, because some of uh, some of these poems are quite clever. And <laughs> right. I'm thinking of the one, the spam yeah. email one that I love that poem so much. How do you find um, how, how do you collect things like are you are these news items? I mean, this was this one yeah. was a spam email. <laughs> yeah. Or something like so. You're just finding them in, in everyday places. Yeah, very much so. And where, where are some other places maybe that you found? interesting poetry sure um well some that i've written recently um i used one that involved um google search autocomplete so like you start to type a phrase and it fills in the rest of the phrase with <laughs> you know other people have searched for you know this uh-huh. and that, that can be you know very revealing what other people have searched for sure. and so i sort of used that to engineer a poem um i wrote a found poem that's a transcription of audio from a video um, of Americans watching donkeys being fed to lions at a Baghdad zoo. Um, so it's just, you know, wow. these people sort of, you can't see their faces, but they're watching through a fence as these lions are let into an enclosure with live donkeys and they eat the donkeys. Wow. And so the, the text of the poem is just from the transcription of the audio of what these people are saying as they're watching this. Um, I've written the, the spam email poem, I uh, found a speech um, by Donald Rumsfeld when he was Secretary of Defense um, about sort of the, the, the actual speech is about sort of spending and sort of cost effectiveness within the Department of Defense. Um, but he uses all these sort of colorful figures of speech and metaphors um, to sort of frame the talk and includes an excerpt from one of um, my favorite 
Aesop's fables in it that has to do with donkeys. And at the time, I was writing a lot about donkeys and lions. And so I, I read that. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, this is so perfect. And so I, I wrote this long found poem um, based on um, on that, draw, sort of drawing from that text. Um I wrote one that's uh, drawing phrases from a book, uh, a manual on taxidermy. Um, so, I mean, it can really be sort of any source material. But what I, I like so much about those kinds of poems is that they speak directly to what I think the strength of poetry is, which is to transform sort of mundane material, in this case, words into something that feels sort of transcendent or interesting and found poems for me in particular because they start with source material that is so banal or um, sort of low culture often and to make that transformation into you know art I think that that leap is really interesting to me and so that, that's often what I'm, I'm trying to do in those poems this might be a good time to maybe read, read sure. something yeah well uh, I can read you the uh, I'll read you a couple uh, that I mentioned uh, this first one is called Curiosity Killed The, and this is the Google search autocomplete one. Okay. So I, the way I wrote this poem was I wrote a series of phrases into uh, the Google search bar and um, wrote down the autocompletes that it provided me with, and then I sort of selected from those and made this poem. Curiosity Killed The. What should you do if your goldfish is dying, is constipated, is pregnant. Do dogs really eat cats, bury bones, see in black and white, love you? Can pets get lice, carry bedbugs, get scabies, travel on greyhound? Do dolphins sleep, have hair, rape humans, kill humans? Will apes ever evolve, talk, take over the world? Can animals be gay, get high, get STDs, have Down syndrome, think? Will humans ever evolve, walk on the sun, go extinct? What do animals think of cars, of music, about death, of us? Um, Terrific. <laughs> so I'll read you this, um, <laughs> this other one, which is the, the lions and the donkeys at the, the Baghdad Zoo. So. And these are... The ones you were mentioning, transcriptions from yeah. the YouTube. Yeah, so these are all, <laughs> I didn't say any of these things. These are all the things that the people watching this um, scene said. And so I've sort of selected from that and arranged it um, into a poem. So lions are fed donkeys in Baghdad Zoo, YouTube. They have no clue what's going on. You're going to die, bitch. Go ahead, eat up. Ah, this is going to be fucking crazy. Open that cage. I only got four minutes left. Ah, 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 ah. This is the history channel. He's about to rip that fucking head off. That's the big one, too. Damn, I was kind of hoping they'd die quicker. Those guys are looking around, breathing. I want to see that big one. Eat it. Eat. Look at the face on that one. He's got blood all over his face. Oh. <laughs> it's pretty dark. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 you know, I, I could read some funnier ones too, but what else did I bring? One about like taxidermy. So there's like knives and skins and things in that one. Uh -huh. I, I mean, you know, my poetry does, 
I think skew towards the morbid a little bit or towards the dark. And I think that's uh, the sort of Werner Herzog in me that's uh, always kind of uh, gravitates toward that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in, in the, the, the Donkey and Lions poem, you know, what I wanted to sort of bring to the surface there um, was the implicit parallel between sort of the ravenousness of the lions and of the people watching. Um, that there's something, you know, natural about the lions eating the donkeys, but there's something more grotesque about the hunger of the people watching. Yeah. Um, and so in some ways, you know, the, the poem is a little difficult for me to read because I don't, you know, I don't actually talk like that. Right. Um, and it's not really in my voice in the way that some of these poems that I write are very much in my voice. I find that tension really interesting. Yeah. So, um, I'm just sort of curious, what gave you the idea to do found poetry? Was there a particular one that like, that was your first one that maybe was the, that unlocked the door Mm. to that world? Or was there, was there something, I'm just trying to think of how, how you decided that that would be a voice uh, of yours. You know, I don't know. I think the First time I remember encountering found poetry was again in high school. I had a, a really great English teacher named uh, Susan Cook who had assigned us to write found poems based on the books we were reading that uh, year. And so I think I'd written a found poem um, using the text of A Brave New World. Um, and I think that was sort of my first encounter with that form. And I, you know, I can't think of sort of any particular examples um, that I've read that really sort of drew me in that direction. But I, I've, I've just, like I said, I've always liked that idea of sort of gathering materials. And, I, you know, I've thought of sort of found poetry as a, you know, a parallel to other forms of art that you think of like collage, collage. for example. Absolutely. Um, or there's this, uh, there's this great sort of uh, sculpture park in Wisconsin where this guy has used um, old farming equipment and um, pieces of machines to build these like weird birds that have like trombones for necks and mm-hmm. uh, stuff like that. And so I'm really interested in that idea of you know things that are made out of sort of repurposed other things from a sure. completely different source. And of course, in music and particularly percussion, I mean, I guess it's primarily in percussion. Yeah. You know, we have the whole found objects, sure. uh, either people that are in inventing instruments out of found objects or using uh, famously, you know, like the American experimental composers like John Cage mm-hmm. and Lou Harrison f- using automobile brake drums and tin cans yeah. uh, as instruments. So I, I wondered maybe if it came from that, uh, sort of from an, another um, art, not just from poetry. And you mentioned the sculptor and, and this kind of thing. So maybe it's just something that was in the air yeah, I think for so. you and you yeah. sort of just picked up on that. Yeah. Great. So uh, what are you working on currently? You have uh, some found poetry here, but you mentioned to me some something about ghosts, a new collection yeah, that's I, coming together. I, I started a new project since I finished this uh, collection about animals and what I'm interested in with this new manuscript, which for now I'm calling Inter-Ghost, which is a line from Hamlet when his father's ghost enters, um, uh-huh. is I, I'm interested in this idea of sort of what haunts us and you know what can constitute a ghost, both sort of literally and poetically. Um, I've felt haunted by poems a lot of the time and by mm-hmm. art in general, and mm-hmm. this idea that something sort of follows you or sticks with you um, has always been interesting to me. And there's a great quote from Emily Dickinson where she says, art is a house that tries to be haunted. Hmm. 
And so I've really taken that as sort of the, the motto of this project to try and sort of find the things that are trying to be haunted. And so that can be um, sort of anything that indexes or references a presence that is absent. So for example, that might take the specific form of uh, voicemail messages left by people who were on the planes during 9-11, right? That those, those messages sort of call up their presence in a specific way. But it could also be something as simple as like, you know, footprints in the grass, right, that slowly fade away, or, you know, the starlight that reaches us from stars that no longer exist because they've died in the time the light has taken to reach us. So I, I feel like all our whole world is sort of infused with these kinds of objects and sensations that connect to something missing. And so I'm, I'm really interested in writing about those connections and sort of writing poems that evoke... Um, presences that aren't here but are that are still strongly felt um so it, it's still in the note-taking stage but I, I imagine it'll involve discussion of literal ghosts but then also sort of more conceptually um you know what a ghost might be including this idea of translation hmm. that the translation is a form of sort of summoning something from the past from another language and that the ghost of that original sort of exists behind the translation so Oh. We'll see how it goes. It's, uh, it yeah. sounds really interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I'll look forward to hopefully. So this is something that's sort of still, you said, in note stage. So yeah. there hasn't really been a lot of poetry created yet. So no. still in the notebooks. Yeah. So I haven't, I've only written like one or two poems um, that uh, I think will end up in this manuscript so far. But, you know, I have my my big list of topics that I'm adding to frequently. And, you know, when I find art or newspaper articles, you know, I forward them to myself and sort of add them to the collection. And then as I start to look through them, hopefully I can start to connect some of those disparate elements together into poems. Mm -hmm. Well, we mentioned earlier that uh, you and I had have some collaborations, yeah. but th this is not your first or your only collaboration with musicians and or composers. Mm -hmm. uh, what attracts you to wanting to collaborate or work with a composer or a musician? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. One is that it sort of plays against my natural inclinations, which I think are to treat poetry as this very sort of private, solitary enterprise, which I think can be limiting. Um, I think from when I first started writing it, you know, it was sort of me in a book alone in a corner or me in a notebook writing something you know, um, on a train, sort of lost in my own head, and that most of my experiences um, with poetry, you know, notwithstanding hearing readings and things like that, are just sort of with me in the page, sort of privately. And so I'm, I'm interested in sort of pushing against that tendency and finding ways of creating that aren't just sort of locked into my own head. Um, and so I, I think it's, it's useful in that sense to reinvigorate my practice. But then I'm also always interested in the parallels I can see in poetry um, and other art forms. So, you know, music is an obvious one, I think, because, you know, language is spoken and, you know, it has these sonic elements to it. But as you said earlier, it doesn't have quite the structure that music does. Um, so that's one I've been particularly drawn to in terms of collaboration because mm -hmm. it, I think it presents challenges to the way I write. Um, and makes me think about 
that sort of creative process differently. Like, um, or I just see parallels, for example, you know, your soundboard project that you had for um, our last collaboration, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, that's very similar to what I do with found poetry, right? Right, exactly. Um, but then sort of what you do with it is maybe sort of you've created a system that you then sort of improv- you can improvise the music based on, um, whereas mine has more of a fixed form. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just find those in, those parallels and differences kind of fascinating and um, the just the way they can sort of reinvigorate my practice is always interested me yeah well i mean to be fair i think the collaborations that we've done those pieces that we've done sort of had both elements of fixed events that were to happen composed elements in the music but then also we did a lot of improvising as well and it for whatever reason it just kind of felt right to do that for those particular poems i'm thinking specifically of the first piece that we did in place, Mm -hmm. which was this, uh, or maybe you want to describe it. Yeah. I mean, I can certainly describe the textual part of it, but it was a series of um, poems or text pieces that depicted sort of wild animals in sort of human environments. So, you know, we have a cockroach on a kitchen floor, some deer on a golf course, some um, bats flying over the prison in town here. Um, and then uh, you had composed music uh, to go along with that. Um, and, you know, I, th- I think that sort of has sort of a, like a unidirectional feel to it. And I was, I was very interested in the, the more recent collaborations we did where mm-hmm. sort of what I was writing was sort of more informed by expectations of what the music was going to be like. So uh, in which one, which one did you feel that way? Well, I, I'm thinking of particularly of our... Um, our sort of our megaphone piece, okay, um, where sort of knowing the the sort of sonic format in which that would be presented um, had a big effect on sort of the writing I put into it. Uh, I you see. Know I mean? Let's talk a little bit about yeah. that particular piece. Good, yeah. good conduct. Yes. Yeah. So you know, knowing that this would involve some. Um, element with uh, me reading text through a megaphone um, made me start thinking about, okay, well, not just what do I want to write about, but what kind of particular text would lend itself either in a straightforward or or ironic way to that kind of production or delivery. And so I became fascinated with this idea of having um, sort of etiquette rules um, that became sort of increasingly sort of harsh and surreal. because there's something so unpolite about that megaphone voice. That's kind of like squawky, <laughs> screechy, loud right. voice. Right. And so that built into the way I thought about what I would write um, in a very deliberate way. Hmm. Um, I've always, It's interesting because I uh, normally the way that I work, especially when I work with uh, when I do creative work with poets and writers, which which has kind of become kind of what I do, mm-hmm. uh, pieces for speaking, percussionist, or um, have some element of, of spoken text. Yeah. I tend to work from the text out. Yeah. Like I tend to have need to have something uh, text-oriented to work with. Yeah. Uh, I'm not very good at, at working abstractly. Yeah. Uh, you know, coming up with a musical system or idea and then implementing that system. Some composers are really great at, at yeah. coming up with these very elaborate structures. And 
I'm not so good at that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I tend to be, a, I don't know. Some would say, some people would call it intuition. Mm-hmm. I had discussions with, you know, lots of different artists over the years saying, well, is it really intuitive? You know, yeah. is, is art really, can it really be intuitive? So I don't know. But yeah. um, I tend to have to have something to work from, which yeah. is, I, I really enjoyed working with you because, you know, you would, we, we kind of had to wait. I kind of yeah. had to wait until I saw something, yeah. uh, some text before I could have an idea about yeah. what, what even to do. Yeah. So in this particular piece, it was really inspired by a Laurie Anderson yeah. uh, piece called Into the Air. Yeah. I think it's Into the Air. Yeah. And... Um, and inspired by uh, some friends of mine in the group called Bent Frequency who had covered the Laurie Anderson piece, yeah. speaking through a megaphone and playing drum set. And so I, I really liked that sound and yeah. I liked the way that it, just the way that it worked. So in, from my part, I just had the idea for, I'm going to play drums yeah. and I'm going to come up with some very uh, cool pop sounding hook. Yeah. Um, and then... Amanda was going to play trumpet and sort of just improvise behind this. And then what are you, <laughs> yeah. what text are you going to write for that? Yeah. You know? So I, yeah, that's, that seems like a really uh, interesting exercise yeah. uh, to, to, you know, and, and working in a, in a new way than just, uh, you know, taking notes and coming up with yeah. making connections with things. You had to actually come up with something that fit yeah. that particular sound world. Yeah. So, and I think it, I think it worked yeah, great. Yeah, this is one of my know? favorite pieces that we did. In yeah. The last one. yeah. So this is a live concert recording of the piece we were just talking about, Good Conduct. This was recorded in early November of 2014 at Tarleton State University while we were there on our Texas tour. Performing is my trumpet percussion duo with my wife and partner Amanda Pepping on trumpet, and I'm on percussion, Nick Lance on the megaphone. You can find out more about our duo projects at lungtaduo.com. That's L-U-N-G-T-A-D-U-O, lungtaduo.com. So this is Good Conduct.
Avert your eyes from all reflective surfaces, lest you seem vain. Even glancing at the edge of a butter knife or the polished brass clasp of a briefcase may be construed as the most dreadful expression of conceit. And with that, we conclude this two-part episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at thatjohnlane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com. And you can follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Nick Lance for visiting the home studio. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.